Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a new podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab podcast series on racism, health, and life. Our podcast from the Activist Lab is called Advocation, Change It Up. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a professor at the College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined today by one of our Activist Lab student advisory board members, Carla Salazar. How are you doing, Carla? Hi, Dr. Miller. I'm doing well. Happy to finish my summer semester and excited to be here today. Excellent. Well, you know, the Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at USF, College of Public Health Activist Lab, you'll see all the educational programs we do, our boot camps, our seminars, our research on a variety of public health topics, and advocacy, and our work to assure that students have practice experience in the community, in the state, and at national levels. Our podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with a guest on a public health issue, and we'll end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. I'd also like to mention today that due to COVID-19 and the pandemic, we are all participating remotely. So hopefully our sound quality will remain quite good. And I can't think of a more important issue now than that of racism and its effect on our health and, for that matter, our lives. This series will feature leaders in academia and our community about these topics. And our first guests are two distinguished colleagues here at the USF College of Public Health who are very well known in medicine, public health, and especially in maternal and child health. We're going to be talking about how racism and especially structural racism has affected the health of our children and families. Our guests are Dr. William Sappenfield and Dr. Russell Kirby. And I'd like to give you a little bit of their background. Dr. Sappenfield joined our faculty at the University of South Florida College of Public Health in 2011 after serving in many positions, including at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Florida Department of Health. He serves as a professor and teaches on maternal and child health, epidemiology, and public health practice. His current research projects include maternal and infant mortality, chronic diseases during pregnancy, assisted reproductive technology, unintended pregnancy and contraceptive use, non-medically indicated deliveries prior to 39 weeks, population-based perinatal quality improvement efforts, access to childhood preventive dental care, and use of data file linkages in maternal and child health, just to name a few. His major contributions to the field include early efforts to develop community-based fetal and infant mortality reviews to adapt the perinatal periods of risk approach to assess infant mortality in the United States communities and to propose state preconception health indicators. Next, we have Dr. Russell Kirby, Joining the faculty in 2008, Dr. Kirby is our Merrill Endowed Chair at the College of Public Health with joint appointments in several departments in the College of Medicine. And while his research interests in maternal and child health are quite broad, he does focus on some particular areas, particularly related to population-based research and birth defects 
and developmental disabilities epidemiology and prevention, as well as risk factors for adverse pregnancy outcomes. Some of his research and scholarly interests include epidemiology and prevention of birth defects and developmental disabilities, population-based research focused on risk and protective factors for adverse pregnancy outcomes, the application of GIS or geographic information systems and spatial analysis in maternal and child health, and population health informatics and record linkage and data integration. So, goodness, that's quite a list, as with Dr. Sappenfield. So, thank you both for, for joining us today. So, hello, Dr. Sappenfield. Well, good afternoon and glad to be joining this important discussion. Thank you. And hello, Dr. Kirby. Yes, I'm glad to be here as well. Thank you. Good. Well, before we begin to hear from Dr. Sappenfield and Kirby, I want to define structural racism for the listeners, and then we can go from there. From the article from Gene Ford for the Dubois Review, structural racism has been defined as the macro-level systems or the social forces, institutions, ideologies, etc., that work with one another to generate and reinforce inequities among racial and ethnic groups. And Structural racism really talks about the most influential socioecological levels at which this racism can affect inequities. Interestingly, structural mechanisms such as this do not require the actions or intent of people. In fact, even if interpersonal discrimination or discrimination expressed between people were completely eliminated, these racial inequities would probably still be there due to structural racism. And some examples of this are segregation, different employment opportunities, educational opportunities, healthcare options, immigration, etc. And of course, these barriers certainly affect health and the lives of our families and children. So Dr. Sappenfield, let's start with you and, and let's Talk about your research in maternal and child health, pregnancy, and its outcomes, and how do you think racism or structural racism relates to the risk factors? Well, the, the biggest thing that's been very clear in maternal and child health is if you look at almost, not all, but almost any outcome, health outcome among uh, mothers, infants, and children, there's almost always a, a racial disparity that is present. Mm -hmm. uh, and when you look at it, immediately, if you look at the traditional risk factors of education, geographic location, anything related to wealth or, or funding of health force, all those do explain clearly the, a lot of the racial disparities that is present. If you look at those women who are in children who are insured and those who are not, frequently, mm -hmm. especially in the preconception period, the rate of uninsured is much higher among African Americans. I think the thing that really stuck out, struck out most to me, because I'm really right now, most people have been talking about maternal mortality and maternal morbidity. Research and quality of care, because that's a new area of emphasis for me, clearly showed that 70% um, of the difference in maternal mor morbidity in New York City could be explained among black women in the hospitals that they delivered at. Because if you look at the quality measures of the various hospitals in New York, mm -hmm. uh, black women tended to go to those hospitals that had lower levels of quality of care. And in New York City, all these hospitals are near each other. So clearly, it impacts almost everything we touch. Wow. And Carla, do you have a question for Dr. Sappenfield? Yes. 
So my question for you, Dr. Sanderson, is what are some changes that you have seen throughout time in pregnancy and in this case, it's structural racism? So as a country, are we getting better? Are we getting worse? Wow, that's a Excellent question. It's a very good question. Because if you ask me, do I see any clearly labeled overt strategies to address racism on a structural level, the answer is is almost no. You almost never nowadays. I mean, we did used to have uh, equal opportunity employment and other pieces, but a lot of that has now been scaled back. We used to have the idea of trying to to integrate and balance our schools, and now we've moved away from that. So that the few things that they weren't defined as rate structural racism, but with a few areas where we tried to truly address that, um, we, we've actually backed off. I think the areas where we're seeing more proactive pieces is as we try to do things like expand Medicaid in other states, we are starting to do programs that theoretically can impact structural racism. But again, very few are overtly targeted that I see, at least in terms of women, children, and families. Wow. So, so Dr. Sappenfield and, and Carlisle, I believe, also asked, so you see this continuing, right? You see this just continuing through the years? Well, do I expect it to continue? I mean, anyone who's even an expert in this area will tell you that even if we start to make changes now, Mm-hmm. and actively try to address it, they're still going to continue for quite a while and maybe even to another generation. But I do know that there are many people who don't want to wait that long. For example, right. I direct the Florida Training Equality Collaborative and my mm-hmm. colleagues in Louisiana now actually have, and so has California now, launched uh, a health equity initiative, truly trying to make sure that the quality of health care provided to African-American women uh, is of excellent quality and that we are starting to have what would, would be sort of implicit biases specifically addressed. Mm-hmm. Our programs and policies and what care people get are all trying to be addressed through those initiatives. Um, and so I do think there are many of us trying to start to work on it, but if you, right. I think it's going to be all incremental targeted efforts. Before we get any kind of change, you know, probably at the state level or even the national level, right? Uh, it, to be at a state or national level, we're going to have to have it be uh, a political uh, action yeah. item. And mm-hmm. even with mm-hmm. all the discussion and debates and conflicts that we've had this summer, I, I haven't seen anyone take this on. Yeah. In terms of the leadership. I have seen the people take it on, but I have not right. seen leadership yet speak up and talk about overt action. So that's so interesting. And I have some questions later on about what we can do as a community for change. But I, I want to turn it over to Dr. Kirby for a few minutes. And Dr. Kirby, could you too talk about your research in birth defects and adverse pregnancy outcomes and risk factors related to this topic? So certainly. Yeah. So the kinds of um, data that we work with, you know, the population-based data, mm-hmm. usually collected through surveillance approaches. And in terms of thinking about race and ethnicity, we're typically using data elements that come from vital statistics primarily, which uh, allow us to classify a mother by her self-reported race and ethnicity. And we have looked at patterns in terms of prevalence of birth defects, for example, mm-hmm. and 
found some instances where there are higher prevalence of specific birth defects among Black and Hispanics, for example, and sometimes also among Hispanics. What's interesting, though, is that when we look at outcomes such as mortality, where we, if we do an analysis where we only look at cases of specific birth defects and look at mortalities of the first year, year five, and so on, we start to see diverging patterns of mortality. And so mm-hmm. the, the thing that is hard for me to explain to anyone is why it would be that a baby born to a black mother would have a higher likelihood of dying from a serious heart defect, for example, than a baby right. born to a white mother. And when I start to, this is irrespective of the, the overall prevalence of these conditions by race ethnicity, but for most of the conditions that we have, mortality is, is higher you know, for black non-Hispanics. And it actually tends to be similar for Asian Americans. Um, but it points to me that, that we're not talking just about quality of care. We're also talking about access to care. And, mm-hmm. and we're also talking about, about differences in, in how messages are received, you know, health messaging right. from, from clinicians and other providers. And, and also probably really, really looking at the, you know, there's accumulation of, you know, basically it's the debt load of structural racism that you have families that have less access to education, less access to resources mm-hmm. and broader community supports. And all of those kinds of things help to add up to the disparity that, that we see. And we see similar disparities when we look at, at some of the developmental disabilities as well. For a while in the 1990s and 2000s, it looked like the prevalence of conditions like ADHD was higher among white non-Hispanics. Right. Conditions like autism spectrum disorder. But now as we are developing better systems for, for evaluating and diagnosing, we're actually not seeing that anymore. Okay. And again, really points up that there are differential access to these um, services and then in terms of the interventions that are that are available. It troubles me when I think about a child who there's a suspicion that they're that they're falling behind and having a developmental delay, that if the family has access to quality insurance, right. they are typically able to get an evaluation. Mm-hmm fairly quickly and potentially get their child into intervention, whereas yeah. if, they're, if the family's on Medicaid or, or the S-CHIP program, they sometimes have to wait six or nine months just to get evaluated. Just to get evaluated okay. and then they're behind. Yeah. Exactly. And so those kinds of things are things that, that are, are kind of built into our system. So when we start thinking about structural racism, it's a very complex, you know, I know. And it's, I know. it is really going to take some concerted effort. It's going to take basically our entire society mm-hmm. willing and able to address it to really make major mm-hmm. change. Um, I hope we do because um, this has been going on as we've been doing lately right. since the 1600s. And exactly. And a very long legacy. And um, it's also something, by the way, that seems to be part and parcel of, of the European cultural tradition, unfortunately. And we're seeing mm-hmm. 
know, similar issues being identified in many of the countries in Western Europe, um, even in the Mediterranean. And so, on. so it's definitely a, a challenging topic, and it would be great if the United States were the country that would show the way forward. But it's yep. going to take a, a lot of work to make that happen. Yeah, because it's been so perpetuated right over the years. So it's been just going on. And we've yeah. been talking about, you know, structural racism. It's not like structural racism, just we learned about it yesterday, right? I mean, we've known about this issue when we talk, we talk about employment or education or health care. We, we've known it, known it, known it, known it. And I think that the difficult thing is now is what, you know, it's been brought to the surface a little bit more. And so I think now we have to figure out what to what to do about it. Sure. Yeah. Well, right? one of the things that's kind of interesting, and as you know, I'm also have a background in, in historical geography. Mm-hmm. If you look at, at the waves of immigration that we had northern and western and eastern Europe, you know, through the 18th and 19th centuries, mm-hmm. we had waves of of immigration where, for many of the immigrant groups, you know, they also based um, bias and segregation and so on. But over time, they were able to assimilate mm-hmm. to the, you know, the mainstream yeah. of mm-hmm. American culture. Pretty much, it took longer for, for immigrants from Poland and Italy and so on, but they were able to eventually. But with African Americans, they were already here. And, right. you know, they were a different population. Yeah. And it was mm-hmm. a very different process. And after after the Civil War, um, systems very much organized and legal systems of discrimination were were quickly built up that led to uh, conditions not really being very much different for for African Americans than what they had experienced um, you know prior to, to the Civil War. And then when those groups migrated to northern cities, which is mm-hmm. you know the genesis of many of them major disparities that we see today, you look at Milwaukee, you look at Detroit, the cities like that, there was overt and covert racism operating at all sorts of levels that that made it difficult for for the members of those communities to, to really succeed and, and to be assimilated more fully into, yeah. into the American life. Yeah. So, you know, we'll get to this, as I said later, but I, 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 it's hard for me to understand, like, we've understood these things, as I've said, this just didn't happen yesterday, and why it's not been addressed. But I, I think there's so many reasons, right? There's belief systems, there's political, probably a lot of it's the politics behind this. Um, and, you know, that, that just allows us to continue. Well, Carla, do you have a question for Dr. Kirby? Yeah, so I know you said it's a very complex topic, and I agree it is, but what would you say are the key factors that we as public health professionals will advocate to focus on to address adverse pregnancy outcomes impacted by racism? So this could be at the community level, at the national level, even at the healthcare delivery level. What would you say are like key factors that we should address the most? Well, I think I think we have to actually address it at, at all those levels. And I think probably number one is, is we need to find a way to get more um, healthcare providers and, and public health professionals recognize the importance of their participation and advocacy, being there and being a voice for change mm-hmm. and at the local, at the 
the state at the national level. And we need to get engaged in community-based programs that certainly can make a difference as well. I think that's going to be, be very important. But from the standpoint of the practitioner, you know, the practitioner needs to become more aware of some of the issues and challenges that their patients face and not be thinking them just, oh, this is a pregnant woman. Thinking more mm-hmm. about about that woman within the context of her family, her community, and life that that they're living, and ways that they can potentially, you know, provide guidance that might help them negotiate things so that they can have better outcomes. You know, you can't fix chronic disease in one office visit. Mm-hmm. You can at least, you know, give mm-hmm. give the patient some, you know, some tools that she can use that potentially can and allow her to negotiate her challenges better. Mm-hmm. What are some, um, and this would be for, for everyone really to, to think about, um, what are some things that could be done politically? Dr. Sappenfield mentioned expansion of Medicaid, but what are some other things that you would look forward to uh, in the future to change politically so that we can make some dents into structural racism? You know, I can think of a lot of things, but in terms of the, this <laughs> yeah. one really obvious one at the College of Public Health, you know, the recent decision not to use the GRE as um, as a major factor. Oh, well, that, I guess we can consider that political, right? The policy. Well, it is. Yeah. It's a policy, and, and it does discriminate. Um, and it's mm-hmm. very much a, it's a tool that, that does have a cultural bias to it. And okay. um, I've noticed over the years that, that you know, African-American students um, who are <coughs> smart people often don't do as well on the exam. Mm-hmm. And their opportunities, and hopefully that's something that we're going to be able to, to remedy to some extent. Okay. That's just one example. Uh-huh. Bill might have some others as well. Yeah. What do you think, Dr. Sim, at the at the political level, if we were going to change something in Hillsborough County, Let's say, and and I don't want the listeners thinking that there's there's not any programs out there that this hasn't been addressed because there's a lot that both um, Dr. Sappenfeld and Kirby have worked with in the community. But but what do you see changing in the county, changing in the state? Because you know it's going to go. I think it's you know. Do you think it's going to go that way? Do you think it's going to go county, state, nation, or do you think this has to be a national, a first, a national change? that'll percolate down to the states and counties. Well, you know, just just as one, you know, big picture change that would make yeah. a huge difference would be if we had a policy that not just in terms of giving mothers and potentially fathers, um, you know, unpaid leave from their uh-huh. jobs, but if we had a policy similar to what they have in some of the Scandinavian countries, yeah. where a mother would be supported and, that her job would be there when she came back. Right. She actually had financial support while right. they were in the early years of childhood for you know, mm-hmm. years, which would be something that you know, many middle-class families probably wouldn't take advantage of it. But it would mm-hmm. make a huge difference. Huge difference. For, for right. Poor families. But that's a major policy <laughs> change. Mm-hmm. I'd like to start with what Dr. Kirby did before we get to the big things. I do like how he yeah. talked about the GRE, not because of just GRE, but right. I think yeah. racial structural racism exists in each of our areas and spheres. Mm-hmm. And I think the that's first right. thing we can do and everyone should do is look at their own sphere 
and see what are you currently doing that can change. I, I'm going to go back to the big question. I'm just saying, I don't think we want to leave with the idea that, oh, big changes need to happen. They're not all in my control. And I know we can advocate for them, but they'll take right. time. Right. So there's a lot of things we can do quickly in our own right around us. But things, clearly, we need to work on paid leave because more African-American women have both parents who need to work. And mm-hmm. so so when moms need to be home to get that early growth development, you know, we keep thinking with education, well, it's really how the kids need to read early if they're going to do well in school. Well, they need to develop the language and skills and other things early. So we need to work mm-hmm. on getting moms more of an opportunity to be at home when they're born and not have to work about economics. We do need to work on our early childhood learning. I mean, mm-hmm. the disparity what happens to the education of our children by race is quite large. We're one of the mm-hmm. few countries that doesn't pay for publicly funded child, early childhood learning. We're one of the few countries that doesn't pay for paid maternity, maternity leave. Right. There's a, a series of those equalizing factors that really make a huge difference. And it's going to actually, even when we do it correctly, will probably take a few generations to be able to change projections of where people are in their careers and their opportunities. Right. Well, you know, that generational change that you talk about is, is so true. I mean, my work in injury and trauma prevention, you know, we always say that changes are happening now, but the future generations will adopt these changes and it'll be like they never were, you know, it'll be like it has been always. You know, when we take a look at even things like car safety seats and seatbelts and all that, you know, some of us never had a car safety seat, right? But your children put their children in car safety seats and they don't think anything about it, right? That's just what you do. And so that's what, you know, now structural racism is going to be tougher, obviously, than than some of those examples. But um, but it's the same, right? It's going to take it's going to take time, but but we have to put forth the effort. And like I said, what amazes me about this whole thing, and even though we're talking about, and I think it's great that we are, is that it has perpetuated as long as it has. It's ingrained. It's yeah. not just perpetuated. Yeah. It is an ingrained, and we mm-hmm. consider things that happen as normal, and they are not normal. They're just normal for us. Right. But I think we need to remember the whole life course perspective in mm-hmm. intergenerational. Right. The whole idea is investment early and early in the children and early in their education development and economic support and food and nutrition make a huge difference, huge difference. later and mm-hmm. grounds that cannot be made up. That's why we have students who get left behind is because we never gave them a fair start. Right. And we, we need to start changing our thoughts on how to do that. And, and no, we don't need to wait for national legislation. There are states who actually fund early childhood learning programs mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. public. We do not have to wait. There are there are ways that we can start to work on some of these things that could change the equation. I mean, most people don't realize that uh, child care can cost as much as a college going oh, to college. Absolutely. And how many young families can afford to pay that mm-hmm. and live? Right, right. And no, it's, it's another... Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was just going to say another dimension that, that I thought Bill might pick up on and got close to it is the whole issue of affordable housing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Major issue. And, and, and I would throw in, along with affordable housing, also um, the digital divide. As an mm-hmm. issue. And, you know, if you, if you think that, that a child in a, you know, a, a family that has less economic resources 
is getting the same quality of an education at home virtually right now. Yeah. Um, if it's held in a middle class family, I doubt it. Right. No matter how impassioned the, the teachers are. Mm-hmm. No, I. Recipe that is is set up for success. And so right. it could be that even with our responses to COVID, that we're perpetuating structural racism. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are a number of dimensions where where that is true. That's right. The the push to go online for safety reasons we can all understand. But what are we doing? What's another? You know, COVID has had so many of these kind of side effects. You know, well, I understand, we all understand in public health and the listeners probably understand that, yes, we need to do all these, all these things, but, but they also have, um, some adverse outcomes. Good for the health, but can be adverse. You know, every, even as we just talk about physical isolation from other people, mm-hmm. you know, that can have some, some damaging effects. And, and we've known we're going to talk soon in the series here, uh, about violence. And what, um, you know, in, in, in communities and, and what's happened a little bit with COVID and with people being home and how domestic violence has gone up and child abuse has gone up. So, so you know, there are these other ramifications. But as you say for our talk right. today, you know, what has COVID done with the, with the divide, right? As you're saying, the digital divide. Well, and the last thing that we haven't yeah. talked about is the, the wealth and income gap that has oh, grown yeah. substantially in the... And the the disappearance of the middle class in the United States, and and it, and it wealth will be a hard thing to make up. But if we persist in our continuing income gap, we're going to be in serious trouble and perpetuation because people now on minimum wage earn substantially less uh, money than what minimum wage when it first began, and right. we can't get our politicians to even consider increasing it. Uh, and so that income gap, as long as that, I'm not saying we should give take money away, but I'm just saying we need to restructure our policy so that people can earn a fair income. No, 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 of course. And see, all these things we're talking about, you know, you, you both you, uh, Dr. Kirby and Sapphire, so you're, ex, you know, experts in maternal and child health, but they really have an effect on, on everything, right? Whether you're talking about yeah. whatever field, right? This whole idea of it all, housing. It all, yeah. it all connects up. <laughs> It does. That's it all connects up into why. those models. We all learn, yeah. you know, how policy and how yeah. important advocacy and policy is. Well, Carla, do you have yeah. some questions? Um, I don't have any questions for the moment. I just have a little input. Um, everything you all okay. say is true. Um, I agree with what Dr. Santos all says. It's, it's ingrained in the nation. I feel like if you look back, our history, you can see how social racism is part of the foundation of this nation. So that's why I mm-hmm. think it's very important to make sure that the people that we select in leadership roles align with our values and with Absolutely. the changes that we want to see in policy, regulations, and law. Because mm-hmm. at the end of the day, if we want to see a real change, we have to target policy. And we have to target those programs that and help all the social determinants of health that you all talked about today. That's right. That's what we really are talking about. Yeah. But, but again, a lot of policies start from the grassroots. That's why mm-hmm. I do want to go back that if each of us can work on this in our own spheres of influence and create among our peers the, the, the need to see change, and if everyone were to start doing that in their own areas, we would see more of a political movement in this direction. Mm-hmm. 
leaders, you know, we don't follow leaders. Leaders follow the population, and they will go where the population feels needs to change and improve. And so we, I don't want to give up on national policy and state policy, but but you gotta you gotta start a movement and create change because you can build it more easily locally, and from there, ignite it to a larger sphere. Right. And you have to know your window of opportunity, which is, as you know, we talk about in the access lab and in advocacy, right? We got to know when it's right to do it. And right now with the, with this all, it's about, it's a right time. Um, We have some windows Mm -hmm. of opportunity and hopefully with, with leadership, we'll be able to do it. Yes. Dr. Kirby, you were going to say. I was, yeah, I was going to say two things, you know, firstly, in terms of window of opportunity, I think the window of opportunity is much wider at the local Mm -hmm. level. Mm-hmm. And it is at the national level. So yeah. Looking at those kinds of changes in policies and practices that we could potentially implement in Tampa and Hillsborough County, for example, would be right. the place to really focus attention right mm-hmm. now. Not forgetting the national scene, but but you know it's a much harder nut to crack at, at the national level. But right. The other thing I wanted to point out, which might be controversial, but I hope it isn't, is that <laughs> structural racism isn't just about black versus white. That's and right. We need to be, what we need is we need a society that values cultural diversity in all its forms mm-hmm. and, mm-hmm. Um, and doesn't you know, single out any particular racial or ethnic or cultural group uh, right. for, you know, in any negative way. And so right. even as we recognize that the biggest disparities right now are between American and, mm-hmm. and white, we also mm-hmm. want to be finding ways to love better assimilate the, the various Hispanic right. groups into our society, other right. migrant groups that we might have as well, because mm-hmm. really what makes our nation strong is the fact that we we value and take the best from all the different cultures that we have, and um, that's what I hope we would do. Right, and, and you know, advocating for change, I mean, advocating as Dr. Sapsfeld locally and going, I mean, that's true, and you have to look at your leaders as people run for office, you know, we were saying, look at their background, how they voted before. How do they vote on housing issues? You know, how do they vote on um, the wages? How do they vote on educational opportunities? You, know, well, you can find that out now. The candidates, you know, the candidates yep. for school board. How many That's of them right. are in favor of, of to um, abolish abstinence only at sex <laughs> education in Hillsborough County Public Schools? Mm-hmm. Want to vote for somebody who isn't committed to that? No, then no that's then don't vote for them. That's right. <laughs> that, no, no, that's a, yeah. Well, yeah. And, and there's the big changes that need to happen, and there are the small changes. One of the things that COVID has brought out to me is there's a huge racial disparity in who gets tested, who makes it in the hospitals, and how. Mm-hmm. And so some communities have taken structural racism on. For example, when they set up their county testing facilities, they were not always in places where minority communities could actually get ready access. Mm-hmm. So they actually mm-hmm. intentionally, and in some communities, not every, went ahead and set up mm-hmm. special sites specifically mm-hmm. for minorities to ensure greater access. Right. right. The other thing is most of these testing sites required people with cars to get tested. That's right. Well, you see the long line. People don't have cars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do they then get tested? And so people have started to come up with, well, what do you do if you don't have a car, but if you weren't first? So I guess what I'm trying to bring up is the racial structure, the structural racism is going to take time. It needs to happen. 
But we also need to be thinking about what do we need to be doing because of racial and yeah. these, these structural defects, and what can we do now to mm-hmm. think differently? Because if we start thinking differently about our current problem, we are right. going to be more likely to start thinking different about our longer term issues. Mm-hmm. I was just going to agree with that. It starts with the small steps, and then you, know, you can work your way totally up. And I think COVID itself has been a real wake-up call, you know, I think, for this, as we look at who's most seriously affected from COVID as well. Um, you know, these are folks who um, a lot of times are, are racial minorities. They can be uh, folks who are disadvantaged. And, and, and why is that? You know, well, because of a lot of times exposure, right? If, if these people are more on the front lines than other people, they're going to have more exposure. And then if, they, if somebody does become ill with COVID, if you don't have insurance, I know that, that hospitals will treat and everything. But, you know, if, if you don't have that, if you don't have good access to health care, then that's another problem. Well, it's not a research article, but just today in the New York Times, they talked about in Florida how we've had a large increase in death among younger people. Right. And mm-hmm. 40% of that is among blacks. Mm-hmm. And initially, everyone attributed the party, but as they did their investigation, it's not research, they found a much stronger link to work and where they had yeah. to work yeah. and where they get exposed to. Mm-hmm. And if you think about it, that's a sign of there you go. That's right. I saw that. Yep. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's why. And so I think COVID has even brought this even more right to light as we've taken a look at that. And social and 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 essentially also social unrest that went on after COVID um, with George Floyd's death and and all of this. I think it has come. You know, it, it has been brought out more in the open. Even though, like I said, we've we've known about it. You know, we've reported on it. In fact. Um, we're here on the uh, call today. We're researchers, and uh, often when we look at our data, um, we will say there are differences in race, right, for different indicators, whatever we're looking at. And I read the other day, I've, I've read some researchers that said maybe we shouldn't, you know, when we say that, we need to qualify that a little bit because it's not really race, which is we're going to have a whole series on the social construction of race. Going to have a whole episode on that later on, but it's is it it's not really race, right? It's it's this what's happened to this particular race, correct? Through structural racism and these other mechanisms. So I call it a marker for other issues. Yes. So I and, I, I found that and, very and interesting. Some of them are are clearly racism related, and some of them are social determined, and mm-hmm. some of them are other factors. Yeah. So, so, I mean, you, of course, we'll continue to report on race because it's an indicator. But I think now as we talk about that finding, we just don't leave it at 50 percent of this affects African-Americans, you know, 30 percent of that or whatever. You know, we explain that a little bit more and don't just mm-hmm. leave it at that. Of course, this is aside from any genetic diseases or anything that you may have a preponderance. But, you know, these are these things that I'm, I'm going to be more cognizant of myself in the future. So, well, Carla, do you have anything else for Dr. Kirby or Dr. Sapphisdale? No, I agree with everything that you said. Um, I guess well, I you know, Carla, say- yeah, before you, you end up, I was going to ask you from a student standpoint, from someone who is just a little bit younger than the three of us, um, and being in the activist lab, you know, we talk about being advocates now, be an advocate now, be an advocate really forever. What do you think, and, and Dr. Steppenfield and Kirby can do this, you know, we always end a podcast by saying, what can we do to make change? What can we do in the community right now? And not just a change, to make real change. 
So, so what do you think, Carla? What, what's the pulse of the students when it comes to this topic? I definitely think we are seeing a collective shift right now. And I know we talked about so many big changes in this podcast, as well as small changes that Dr. Santosil mentioned. And I right. guess I want to say to everyone that is listening that I know as a student, because we're so driven to make a positive impact, it sometimes mm-hmm. can feel a little bit hopeless because we feel right. these big changes that we want to achieve. And we know it takes time. We know it takes some action and some um, advocacy with leaders and whatnot. But I think it's really important to remember the small things that we can do ourselves mm-hmm. personally and with the with our group of friends or family. And I think that starts with educating ourselves about the problem. So when there's a chance that we can point out when something is not right, we can speak up in situations where African-Americans and other minority groups are in disadvantage. And that way we can give them a safe space mm-hmm. where they can voice their concerns and they have that space to make sure that they can say what they're going through. And at the same time, we can make sure that we are checking ourselves, check the privilege that we may have and the things that we may have to unlearn to be better allies with this minority group that need our help right, right now. Right. Great. Thanks. Anything else from, from either Dr. Sappenfeld or Dr. Kirby? Well, it's a specific target area for the Florida Parent Equality Collaborative. We've, yes. we've already brought in the researchers who document that we have structural racism and racism in the quality of care. And so we're now on a strategy to try and cultivate more of a sense of need among our partners and among our hospitals of the need to address it. And we're looking at the evidence base. And so I see us continuing to highlight it, to bring it to attention, to eventually have an initiative to try and address it specifically as we prepare our partners to decide this is what we need to do. So it's clearly on our agenda for the short run. Very good. Excellent. That's such a great collaborative. Dr. Kirby. Right, and it's it's definitely an interest in the work that that we do in the Berkeley Sexual Realms program, and more broadly with other activities in the Child Center as well. I would point out actually that um, within a few years, it's going to become possible to array a multi generational data set with mm. sort of vital statistics. Well, we're not quite there yet. We need to have a few more years for yeah for um, women who were born in the earlier period to have completed their reproductive um, history. But but that's going to enable us to, to say even more things about about how structural racism affects outcomes and potentially point the way to other opportunities for prevention. Yeah, well, that's great. I really look forward to that, you know, always with data and then how we can put the data, you know, to best use. Well, I really want to thank everybody so much today. Um, on behalf of the, the College of Public Health Activist Lab, on behalf of our student guests, Carla, and our wonderful and informative guests, Dr. Sappenfeld and Kirby, again, we thank you. We thank our listeners for joining us. And I'd like to say that we're going to have new segments coming soon on this topic because, as you heard today, we're just starting the talk here, and we're going to just keep moving it forward. Again, the series is Racism, Health, and Life. And we'd like to hear from you. We always like feedback on what you learned today, what you liked, what you have for suggestions. You can email us at College of Public Health Activist Lab, all one word, at usf.edu. So until next time, 
This is Dr. Karen Liller. Hey, remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and please subscribe to Advocation. Tell your friends and family we're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And when it's safe to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.